So good morning. It's lovely to see you all, and uh, thank you to Colin for leading us in, in worship, and to Neil for uh, reading from God's Word for us. Uh, so some of you in this room know what I'm about to talk about. Some of you, this is coming up in your future. So learning how to drive. Uh, so a lot of you in this room might well already know how to drive, and you have gone through having all those lessons and doing your test. Uh, but if you've not done that yet, you can see a few young people in the room, so you're all younger, but a few extra young people. Uh, and so this, this is coming up, and so on your 17th birthday, what will most likely happen is that you'll go out either with your driving instructor or with a parent or a guardian, and you'll get your first try of a car. Uh, and so uh, when I learned to drive, in fact, myself and Lindsay, we both learned to drive in the same two cars. Uh, so we had the same driving instructor, and uh, he had a, a diesel Fiesta. Uh, and so the diesel Fiesta was a dream to learn how to drive in. Uh, the other car that we had, uh, that my parents had, was a Nissan Micra. Uh, and so this was, like, we were both very grateful for it. In fact, both myself, Lindsay, and Colin drove this car. And I think we both all prammed it as well. So, um, uh, but the different, you didn't call it, I'm sorry. You did lose all the hubcaps at one point, so <laughs> that's altogether a different story. Uh, but with the diesel Fiesta, what, so one of the things you learn when you're, when you're, you're driving, you learn this the first time you get into a car, it's about the biting point. So the biting point is a big thing that you need to learn. Uh, and so, uh, but with a diesel Fiesta, I don't know if anyone's ever driven a diesel Fiesta or has one, but when you find the biting point, basically the whole car shunts forward a little bit like that. So you know you've got, you know you've got the biting point. Uh, but in the Nissan Micra, it was completely different. And I will say as an aside, I'm surprised that Lindsay and I learnt in the Nissan Micra because it is the uncoolest car that has ever been made. And so it was basically a red cloud that kind of moved through the streets. And it feels some of you know my dad a bit. My dad's really into cars. In fact, one of the earliest memories that I had as a kid, so I was about three years old at the time, was when my parents sold a black Escort XR3. Now, if anyone remembers the Escort XR3, that was a cool car. At least I thought so as a three-year-old. And I remember us being at Farmer's or Harper's garage on Great Western Roads and me crying about them selling that car. Partly because they then... Instead of the Escort, they got an Orion Kia or something like that, which just wasn't as cool. Anyways, so but within this, 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 I might go back to my story. And so when you got to the biting point of that, like, it was a slight, slight change of tone in the engine. I don't wonder if you remember that. But, <laughs> so, but I remember going out with my dad, so on my 17th birthday, and trying to find the biting point in this in my phone. And let's put it this way. I think I maybe went out, that was the only evening I went out with my dad to learn how to drive. I think because I absolutely thrashed the clutch, absolutely thrashed it. And I actually remember after passing my test, myself and Lindsay going out to drive and I, I, was, I was driving and she was in the passenger seat. And I like cringed, she was just cringing at me driving as I like thrashed this clutch and the, the engine was roaring. So anyways, guys, when you're learning how to drive, the biting point is one of the things you're going to have to figure out. Diesel fiestas, that's the way to go. <laughs> the other thing that you learn about, and you have no idea about this if you're in the passenger seat or if you're in the back of the car, is that there is this thing called a blind spot. So that's the area as you're driving along, 
And so you put your mirror here, and you put your two mirrors. But there is a, a, just a spot behind you where the mirrors don't reveal what is happening. And that is called the blind spot. And so make sure you know when you're driving, you're doing that, you're keeping your maneuver. Was it mirror signal maneuver? You've all remembered that one again. So, yeah. <laughs> Some of us are remembers. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> so, so remember, mirror signal, you have to be checking your shoulder, uh, shoulder uh, and then you can move. But blind spots can be dangerous. And so I find a statistic, it's from the US and not the UK, I couldn't find one for here. But in the US, there are 800,000 accidents a year because someone didn't check what was in their blind spot. That's an incredible number. 800,000 every single year. And even I can recall, sometimes when going down the Joe Cadbury or down to Dundee, and that road is a boring road, isn't it? You kind of just go on autopilot and you forget to do things. And I remember a couple of times of moving out and someone had to slam on their brakes and put their horn on because I've not checked my blind spot to see what was happening. Blind spots can be dangerous. It can be detrimental to our lives. And blind spots is something that we're going to look at a bit today. So we're in John chapter 3, and thank you to Neil for reading for us. And as we read that, we, we find Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who's spending time with Jesus. So Nicodemus, he comes in the night because he has a reputation to uphold. He doesn't want to go in the light of day, go into this miracle worker with genuine questions to who he is. He doesn't want the folks to see that here's a Pharisee coming. Someone who wants to know a bit more about him. But even just in that, I love that Jesus doesn't turn him away. We don't know what time it is, but it's in the middle of the night. We don't know where they are, but Jesus doesn't usher them away. He doesn't say, come, come again another time. Come in the day when I'm feeling a bit more ready, when I'm a bit more awake. Jesus just welcomes them in and has this incredible one-to-one conversation. And it's in this one-to-one that Jesus has with Nicodemus that we get probably what is the most quoted scripture in the whole of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But we get to that next week. We get to that next week. So as we've gone through John, and this is the first time that we've properly encountered the Pharisees. So they were mentioned in John chapter 1, where they sent the priests and the Levites to find out more about Jesus. But here comes one of them, Nicodemus, to find out more for himself. Like, who is this Jesus? But like, who were the Pharisees? So throughout the Gospels and the Book of Acts, uh, we hear of the Sanhedrin, we hear of scribes, we hear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's quite easy to think, just as we're going through those passages, just to think that they're synonyms for one another, and that they were all quite different. So the Sanhedrin, first of all, the Sanhedrin was a place of authority in life of Israel. So it was a place uh, for decisions were made and affected the religious and the political life for all Jews. And the Sanhedrin, it consisted of two parties, effectively. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. And they opposed each other. They bitterly opposed each other. The Sadducees had closer ties to Rome, and genuinely, they were quite wealthy. The Pharisees, as a party, were made up of people from all walks of life. So you had farmers, merchants, you had fishermen, uh, and some writers estimate that at the time, there was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. These groups, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came into being 
around about 160 BC, so you're looking about the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, and as I said, they helped quite different ideologies and different beliefs, and they opposed each other. But what they did unite on was their dislike of Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat to their ways, to their privileged positions in Israel. Jesus didn't fit with the Messiah that they wanted. So they cooperated, these two groups, in his arrest, pushed for his death, they stirred up a mob, put pressure on the Roman governor, and had Jesus nailed to a cross. The other name that I mentioned in there is the Stripes. And so they weren't a party uh, in, the, in themselves, but they were strives like learned teachers, authoritative leaders and experts in the Jewish law. Uh, as I've done a bit reading on that, they seem to have a closer tie to the Pharisees, but they weren't the Pharisees. So unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees who are set from about 160 BC, the scribes you can actually see back through the Old Testament, but you see how their role changed over time. So about a year, year and a half ago, and we actually made it through the book of Ezra. So Ezra is described as a scribe. But you can see how things have moved on since then. And it's Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees, they were passionate about the law. However, they added to it. So they created traditions that put distance between man and the possibility of sin. So they layered law upon law upon law. So for example, God said not to work on the Sabbath. So they created laws that constituted what was work. So in doing this, however, they drew people's attention away from the original command, away from its intended purpose, and for that to draw them closer to God. They had amassed hundreds, if not thousands, of these traditions and laws, and they were concerned about the details of them, not on who which the law was designed to bring the people of Israel closer to. And you can see that throughout Scripture. These additional laws created blind spots. So in this passage that we went through, we're going to look at three of them uh, that we see in Nicodemus and the Pharisees. So the first one, um, forget it. So Israel, they believed in like three promises that were made through and the prophets in the Old Testament. So they believed in the regathering of Israel after the exile in Babylon. They believed in cleansing and spiritual transformation of God's people. And thirdly, the coming reign of the Messiah over Israel and the whole world. And they believed that two of those had already happened. They believed that the regathering of Israel had happened. They also believed that that cleansing and transformation had taken place as well. So they saw the likes of the Pharisees, so they were so strong in the law, they were so strong about what was clean and what was unclean, they saw that as examples of what they thought the cleansing and transformation was. And so from the outward appearance, you look at Nicodemus, you look at the rest of the Pharisees, and you look at them and say, yeah, look at them. They appear to be transformed. Here was Nicodemus, he was a religious leader, a Pharisee, an educated person, an earnest man. By outward appearances, he was already transformed, yet he wasn't. A few weeks ago, we looked at what it meant to be born again. And that's what you saw in those first few verses. That's what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus. It means to have that new heart, to have that new life in Christ. 
And Jesus makes it clear that this is not something that Nicodemus can do, it's not something that I can do, it's not something that you can do. Another way to say born again is to say born of above. Jesus says you must be born of the Spirit, and the Spirit does what He will do. This spiritual transformation, this cleansing, is not something that Nicodemus brings about. It's not something that he can control. There's not something that any amount of traditions and laws can bring about. But that's what the Pharisees were relying on. They're relying on law for that cleansing transformation. Their layer upon layer of rules they felt was enough. It was what they placed their hope in. It was what they placed their trust in. But Jesus Christ says, that doesn't work. You must be born again, born of water, born of the Spirit. It's only in God trusting in the cleansing that Jesus provides through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And that's what we've been singing about a lot this morning, of what Jesus has done for us. We trust in God for that transformation to come by the power of his Spirit. So Jesus' words forever exclude the possibility of salvation by other efforts. Our nature is so gripped by sin that we need an activity, we need an intervention, a move of the power of God. We need a move of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what is necessary for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needed to let go let go of all these rules. Let go of all these traditions. And instead, rely wholly on God. I guess there's a question there for us. Who or what are we relying on for salvation? It's so easy just to fall back into thinking that it's about what we can do. But do we rely fully on Jesus to do what only God can do? The next blind spot we find is how the Pharisees read and understood the scriptures. So if you want to look at verses 9 and 10, and so I'll just read those for us. So Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So Nicodemus was a teacher, someone who had a position of influence in Israel, someone the people of Israel would have trusted in showing them who God was and what a life of living for him looked like. Nicodemus and the Pharisees would spend hours, days, years studying the scriptures. So there was an expectation of Nicodemus to know certain things and to lead the people of God forward not away from God. Yet he was blind to who those scriptures were revealed to be the Messiah, the man that was standing right in front of him. As we approach God's words, we need to continually surrender ourselves time and time again. It's so easy to read scripture with an agenda, looking for it to say what we want it to say looking for it to affirm what we want to believe, looking for it to validate our own opinions, 
rather than allowing Scripture to form our beings. So easy to do it. So we need to approach the Word of God with that surrendered heart. And so there's three things I want to suggest whenever we open the Word of God that we should pray. So here's three verses on this. So Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Luke 24, 45. Uh, and so this is um, after the resurrection and just before the ascension. Uh, so Jesus is spending time with his disciples. And this is what, this is what happens. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And from there, there's Pentecost, and then Peter is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to speak of things that I don't think he was able to speak of before. We need our eyes to be opened, we need our mind to be opened. And in Ephesians 1, 16-18, it's the words of Paul, it says, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Whenever we come to God's words, I think it's important that we pray what is in those verses. Father, are you still, would you open our eyes? Would you open our minds? Would you enlighten our hearts and give us that spirit of wisdom and of revelation? We must rely on the spirit in ourselves to help us. We need his help to lay down our wants, to lay down our dreams, to lay down our agendas. We need his help so that we do not manipulate what is in this amazing book full of God's words. And from there we need to pray that blind spots don't appear, but anything that might be a blind spot might be revealed to us. If we don't do that, if we read with an agenda, if we read into what we want to read into it, we won't get closer to God. Could lead us further away from Him. And Nicodemus, as I said, he was a Pharisee, so he um, had influence over many others in Israel. He was a teacher. Our blind spots don't just impact ourselves. They can very easily impact the people around us. For all who stand where I am, for all those who across the shire, across the city, across our nation, who are preaching from God's word, we need to pray. We need to pray that they will be faithful to the word of God and that they will not preach with an agenda. And the root of the blind spots was a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and still is. As Nicodemus approaches Jesus, he calls him a rabbi. So we have to turn with me uh, just to that first few verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he speaks of him being a rabbi, and so there is respect in that term. He acknowledges what Jesus has done, so Jesus has already done some miracles and he's seen something in them. 
But he doesn't, his eyes are opened to see who Jesus truly is. He's still blind to it. You see, the Pharisees, the Israel, they were looking forward to this Messiah coming. But they had misconstrued who this Messiah was. So they were expecting more of a military Messiah to come along. Someone who was going to usher out the Romans. Who's going to conquer them and give Israel back its independence, its freedom and power. So Nicodemus is confused. That's why he's coming the night. Because he's got questions to who Jesus is. And Jesus in this passage reveals who he is. So if you want to look at verses 13 and 14 with me as well. It says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in that verse 13, so Jesus is speaking of his divine nature. That he is fully God. Someone who has come for the perfect presence of God being in heaven. And he's come from heaven to be with us. He is the Lord of heaven. This verse speaks of his authority. As Jesus taught, his authority wasn't founded in someone else or anything else or anything fallible. His authority was perfect because he was God and is God. You say to me, listen to me, I know the truth, I have the authority. And he reveals it in the term that he uses to describe himself. So you see throughout the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus chooses to call himself the Son of Man. And so that is a term that you first find in the book of Daniel. Uh, and so in the prophetic passages there, you find this term, the Son of Man. Uh, and for the, for the Jews, they understood the Son of Man to be a term that would be used for the Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, look, I am he who is coming to be with you. I am the Savior, I am the Messiah, I am the God who has come from heaven to be with you, to make the way for you. And then in verse 14, he goes even further. So in verse 14, let me just read it again. It's quite confusing. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, and so that feels like quite confusing for us. It's like, hold on. Why are we talking about serpents right now? Where does the serpent come from here? Uh, and so we, what Jesus is doing is referring back to a passage. So it's back in number, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. And so I'll, I'll do a bit of a paraphrase. Uh, so the people of Israel, they are walking in the wilderness. And as they are prone to do, they are grumbling of food and water. They're impatient and they're asking why they've been brought out of Egypt to die. So what does God do? God sent fiery serpents among them and it says that many of the people died. So Israel, they they turn uh, and and they cry out to Moses declaring that they are guilty and they're asking for Moses to intercede on their behalf so that these serpents might be removed. In verse 89, we read in that passage, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. 
and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus is likening himself to this bronze serpent's pole that was made of where if anyone looked on it, that they would be saved. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Look to me and be saved, all you at the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is an invitation from Jesus to Nicodemus to look to him. Don't look to your laws, don't look to your traditions to be saved. You have to look at me. You have to come to me. There is no other. Jesus is saying, I am much greater than this point. There is this amazing gift that God had given to the people that even if they were bitten, I find it interesting that he didn't remove the serpents from the camp, but he gave them a way to be saved. Maybe there's something of this world where, do you know what? Even when we come to Christ, sometimes this world is difficult. Sometimes this world is really hard. Sometimes when we pray to Jesus that he would remove those situations from our life, sometimes that doesn't happen. But what he's done is, I've come. I've come and I've come to save you. Look to me and you will be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save us. So let me turn to the words in this passage that we've read so that if you've trusted in him and as the way, the truth, and the life, if you have trusted in Jesus for the cleansing and transformation, for that salvation that comes from him, if you are born again, you will see the kingdom of God. If you are born of water and spirit, you will enter the kingdom of God. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life. And for all of us, on a day when it's bucking with rain and on a day when it's glorious sunshine, that truth is incredible. In this passage, we've seen the blind spots of Nicodemus and the Pharisees. We've seen how they missed who Jesus was, who he was revealed to be in the scriptures, and the need of cleansing and transformation. And so Nicodemus, he comes up again uh, two more times in scripture, and it's not clear what has happened to him if he has experienced this transformation. So we see him in John chapter 7, and so there's a dispute over who Jesus is. And um, Nicodemus, he's still described as a Pharisee then, he defends Jesus, and he suggests that he is given a fair hearing. But it's not clear if he believes. It's not clear if he's looking to Jesus for salvation. And we see him again in John 19, and that is after the death of Jesus. And it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who are preparing Jesus' body for funeral, uh, for the burial. And Nicodemus, he takes with him expensive perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body. And then they take his body to the tomb. And what does that mean? Does that mean that at that point, Nicodemus is looking to Jesus to be saved? I don't think we can definitively say yes or no on it. 
And I'll be honest, that does my head in a little bit. Because <laughs> I want to know the end of the story. I want to know, has Nicodemus turned from trusting in these laws and traditions, and then is he looking to Jesus perfectly? But maybe there's a teaching point in that for us as well. Let me just read verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I say to you, must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Maybe there's something up here that we're just being reminded that we need to trust in Jesus to do what Jesus will do. And me wanting to know the end of the story is probably more about my wanting to control things. My wanting for some nice, neat endings to things. But that's not always life. And this is a reminder that for all people, we maybe do not know where the story might end. But we should continue to pray for them. Uh, I heard something last week of um, someone who had sat under the preaching of Dominic Smart for a number of months and had um, you know, listened to some of his sermons online, uh, but had never turned to Jesus. Certainly for as long as Dominic was, uh, was preaching and was alive, it didn't seem to be that point. Um, but I heard that last week this person was baptized. Dominic didn't know what happened. But there's something of the faithfulness that we are called to in this. Now, you know, we might never know the end of the story for some people, but we trust in Jesus to do what he will do. The Spirit will do what the Spirit will do, and we are called to be faithful, to plant seeds and to pray. We are all broken people in need of God's grace. We are all people in need of transformation. We are all people who need to look to Jesus to be saved. And the easy thing after looking at a passage like this in John 3, we read to go, oh, look at those Pharisees who, who missed the point. And we sit there feeling slightly small. And then pride can easily come into our hearts. But that's not what we want. When we read passages of scripture, we hold it up as a mirror to ourselves and we ask God uh, to encourage us but also to reveal the things to us where we need to like surrender to him. And so we do that with the passage. And we ask him, God, would you reveal what are my blind spots? And we ask that question first, what are my blind spots? We don't ask the question of, what is their blind spots? What is their blind spots? And we don't say, oh God, please let me be the person to reveal the blind spot to them. We don't do that. We ask the question of ourselves, first of all. And then as community, we look to point one another to Jesus. So in asking this question of ourselves, we need to ask it with all humility. We need to ask ourselves, do we see Jesus for who he truly is? Do we read scripture with that surrendered open heart? Are we trusting in Jesus fully for our salvation? It is a desperately sad reality that there are many people who will sit for decades in the church, Sunday by Sunday. They may even serve on lots of rotas. They may, from an outward appearance like Nicodemus, look like they have that transformation, that cleansing. 
But the incredible sad truth is it, it, it sorry, the incredible sad truth is that they have not looked to Jesus. That they have not placed their faith in Christ alone. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or maybe for us, it's other areas in our lives that we have blind spots. Maybe it's an area of unforgiveness in your life. Maybe you're holding on to a grudge against someone and just desiring that they get what they deserve because they have hurt you so, so much. Yeah, we're called to forgive as we have been forgiven. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something to do with money. Maybe it's something to do with who you allow to influence you on social media and different media outlets. Maybe it's what you're watching. Maybe it's the gossipy conversations that you somehow find yourself engaging with at work, or maybe it's how you speak about a colleague or a manager, or how you treat someone who works for you. I don't know. Could be anything. At the end of our time together, I'm just going to give us a couple of moments just for us to all ask for the Spirit to reveal the points. As we do it personally, we do it as a church as well. Are we doing things because that's maybe just the way that we've always done them? Sometimes in churches, we can get so focused on traditions as well. It's just like, no, that's the way you do it. And somehow we can get focused on the how we do it rather than on the why we do it. Are we, as part of the body of Christ, fulfilling the call that God has placed on us? May we do all things for His glory in response to His love, asking the Spirit to guide us. David Platt, uh, some of you will recognize his name, he's an author uh, and a pastor in, in Washington. Uh, and so he, uh, he's written a couple of books that are just brilliant. If you've never read, read anything David Platt, get some of them, they're brilliant. And as he speaks of wine spots, and he says of how they can be small and subtle. They can just be a series of small steps that we seem to easily justify or make excuses for, but before you know it, have turned into a chasm. Ah, that's no big deal. Everyone is doing it. That's just a phase I'm in, or, you know, I, I can see that I'll sort that out at a later stage of my life, or, oh, that's, that's your understanding of the Bible, or, you know, I, I'm not hurting anyone in doing this. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about that. We can hear ourselves with these excuses. We need to humble ourselves, do not allow those excuses, and ask the Spirit to transform us. We continually ask, humbly ask, where is my blind spot? What do I need to surrender? The Pharisees, they didn't want to surrender their prominent position in society. And Jesus threatened that, and so they despised him and eventually had him killed. Blind spots. They start small and subtle, but before you know it, they can turn into a chasm. We ask these questions with a desire for holiness in our life. We ask it with a full knowledge that God wants all of us. He wants all of our lives. He wants all of our obedience, and He is worthy of all. We ask these questions in community, in trusting relationships. Asking and giving each other that permission to speak into our lives. I think for all of us in the last two, three years, we've known isolation like we've, 
never known it before. And there's probably some things in lockdown that we didn't mind it. We didn't actually mind having a bit of time to ourselves. That we could just focus on what was happening in our lives instead of having to think what was happening with others. And I do think across the board there's that intentionality that we need to have that depth of relationship again. I know that's something that I found in my life. Just having that time in a house of your own, yes, you did some Zoom calls and that. Everything was very transactional, not all sort of relational. I'm not speaking for everyone here, because that's probably not everyone's uh, experience of it. But I think there is something in that. So we need to come back to a point where we are deeply relational people. So we can give permission to people to say, you know what? I need you to point out the things in my life that are not loving. Are we doing that? Are we building up those relationships? We do that in community, not looking to judge one another, but because we really love one another. As we come to a close, I just want to read first uh, two, three verses um, from Colossians 3 as a way of prayer. And there's something here of how we need to look for the blind spots that exist. How do we prevent blind spots from forming? So here it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What are you setting your mind on? Who are you seeking after? And today, please don't hear that I'm asking you to do more. That's not what this is. Maybe asking us to let go of things. And for us to seek Him above all things. If you can just take it by your heads and close your eyes. And just before I pray, I just like give you a moment just in silence for you just to pray that prayer of all humility. God, show me the blind spots. Show me the things that are just in those small, subtle steps. But before Noah can turn into chasms. And ask to surrender those things and to seek Him. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Father, let us hold on to Jesus. Let us trust in Jesus. Let us put our entire hope in Jesus and not in anything else in this world. Let us not trust in anyone else for our salvation, but solely Jesus. Jesus only.
Jesus. Father, we confess that we are broken people. That we are sinful people. But we give you thanks and praise that through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're not seen as sinners, but we are seen as saints washed blood through the blood of Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you for that cleansing that you do in our life. Thank you for that transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit. We ask for more of it in our lives, surrendering ourselves once again to you. Asking what we prayed earlier on that, that we would decrease and that you would increase, God. And Lord, we pray that you would just reveal the areas, the blind spots in our life. The things that we need to surrender to you. The things that we know that are not of you. Things that are not leading us closer to you, but away from you. The things that may even influence others. Would we surrender these things to you once again? We thank you that you are a God who forgives. You are a God who cleanses. You are a God who transforms. And we trust in you.